This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode, you've seen the headlines, who won the by-elections, you've seen the resignation, but what do all these numbers mean? Well, who better to pick through the by-election results and what it tells us about the possibility of an outcome of a general election? Well, Professor Sir John Curtis, Lord Robert Hayward, Paula Surridge and Lucy Fisher, they're all here crunching the numbers in just a moment. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel, and on a Friday, of course, it's Formel. So where, where, where should we go first? What, what particularly has caught your eye, James? Uh, tactical voting. Uh, I mean, this is why was the Tory defeat in 1997 so catastrophic? Because uh, politics divided into Tories and anti-Tories and people voted for the person most likely to unseat the Tory. And that's why they went down to such a devastating defeat. And I mean, the real worry for the Tory party is you can see this is happening again. Uh, Look at Tiverton. In 2017 and 2019, Labour Party came second there. Last night, their vote share fell by 16% and they lost their deposit. Now, I don't think even the most kind of one-eyed Tory, not even the Dean Doris could claim that that is because Keir Starmer goes down particularly badly in in rural Devon, right? It is clearly because people looked around and said, right, I want to get rid of the Tories. Uh, Who is most likely to do that here? The Lib Dems. So I'll support them. And this, I think, is the real worry for the Tories, because if you get tactical voting on anything like this scale at a general election, the results will be totally devastating for the Tory party. Because if you take a very crude look at the opinion polls right now and you add together Labour, the Liberal Democrats and the Greens, the kind of left bloc, you get to about 60% of the vote or just under. And if those people in, in every seat, enough of them, basically say, right, I'm going to vote for the person who's most likely to beat the Tories here, that, that, that there are not going to be that many Tory MPs left after the next election. And that's the thing that you need where uh, you, d- you don't need Keir Starmer and Ed Davey to share a platform and declare that they're a united no. front. Voters are actually quite sophisticated with this stuff. 
Yeah, look, they self-sort. And I think you saw, you've seen that actually in Scotland recently, where the, the unionist vote has essentially self-sorted in, in various elections to try and back the people in the constituency most likely to defeat the SNP. And I think the, I think the, the worry for the, the question for the Tories becomes, you know, how do you defang this tactical voting? Now, uh, you know, I think one problem for them is that the Tories in recent months have chucked lots of red meat to their base to try and, and, and energise them, to try and G them up. The danger is that by doing that, you, you, you invite an equal and opposite reaction on the tactical voting front. That, that, that people who don't, people who aren't Tories think, oh my word, I really must find a way to vote against them. And the other question is, you know, is even those loyal to him concede this at the moment that, you know, that at, right now, Boris Johnson is more of a motivating force for the anti-Tory vote than the Tory vote. And I think the kind of, the question every Tory MP is wondering is, can he turn that around? And I think if he can't turn that around, we would probably be looking at a rule change. You, you think that could that could come? Because the, 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 it basically requires the 1922 committee, about a dozen or so of them, to, to decide actually they could have another vote, no confidence, they don't need to wait yeah. for a year. So, so there'll be, be elections for the 1922 committee before Parliament goes down for the summer. And I don't think that people are going to campaign on an explicit platform of vote for me, I'll change the rules. Yeah. But, you know, Tory MPs, they all talk to each other in the tea room. People have a pretty good idea of where people stand on the, on the, on the question of Boris Johnson. And I would be surprised if Tory MPs didn't elect an executive which had a majority, not in favour of changing the rules kind of regardless, but a majority of changing the rules if the circumstances in inverted commas required it. What's your reading of this money? What, what stands out for you looking at these uh, two by-election results? I, I, well, in fact, I had, I had thought exactly the same as James. It is the progressive alliance, isn't it? It is this left-centre, centre-left coalition, uh, which is looming, uh, potentially, uh, which, which could be, you know, could come in 20 points clear of the Conservatives in, in a general election. Uh, or you, you, there's repercussions with Scotland, too, in that, because the SNP would be part of that. And all you, all, all we can be sure of, absolutely sure of right now, is that people like Ed Davey and, and Keir Starmer are sitting there praying that the, the rules aren't changed by the, 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 the 1922 committee and that Boris Johnson stays in power because he is the one thing that will make this, this centre left coalition happen. For sure. Is it? Do you think um, Keir Starmer, money, should Keir Starmer be worried that actually, on paper at least, as James was saying, they were in second place in Tiverton. They could have had a crack at both of them. That actually, the the, the Wakefield result is okay. It's fine. Uh, it's good that they won it rather than not winning it. But actually, it's not a sign that the nation's falling in love with Keir Starmer. Do you know? I I think I don't think the nation has to fall in love with Keir Starmer. I think there is such there is such a move against just against the the the, the Tory party at the moment that. The, the attraction of people, mild-mannered people like, like Ed Davey and Keir Starmer is that they're not Boris. That they're rather colourless. They're rather dull. They're safe. They're not, they're not sort of populist. Um, they, they, they can be trusted. And I think it's, it's going to come down to trust rather than, than glamour and glitter and, and fantastic soundbites. That's my reading of it. And what's going on in the cabinet, James? We've just uh, we've just got this text, uh, not text, a tweet from uh, Rishi Sunak weighing in behind uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, unusually prompt. Uh, from, I mean, occasionally he's a bit slow to uh, remember his Twitter login uh, when uh, the cabinet's rallying around on Twitter. 
but now he's saying uh, he's sad that Oliver Dowden has taken the decision to resign. We all take responsibility as a result. I'm determined to continue working to tackle the cost of living. Um, do you think we, Do you think Boris Johnson is safe from any other cabinet resignations? I mean, presumably at some point now he's got to have a reshuffle as well. I mean, somebody's got to take that job. Uh, I suspect he will probably hold off on appointing a party chairman for for a while. It's not like a it's not like a Department of State where you know if you if you don't replace the Education Secretary after he resigns, people ask who's in charge of schools. You know, I think you know you can get away with not having a Tory party chairman for a while. And I think given that they want to keep open the possibility of a reshuffle in, in July, I think they would probably they would probably rather hold off on that on that front. Um, rather than appointing successor straight away. I don't think you are gonna see other cabinet resignations this morning. You know, I don't think Oliver Dowden told anyone that this is what he was planning to do. Um it was one of those I mean he came as a proper bolt from the blue and i think but you know but i also think this which is what is quietly devastating about his letter is when you have a swing of almost 30 percent against you in one of the safest tory seats in the country um we can say many things matt but i don't think we can argue but if cchq had put the leaflets out in a different order or <laughs> or, or, or gone for a, a different tactical approach to the by-election it would have made a difference so he is clearly taking responsibility for something that, that wasn't a kind of failure of a canvassing data or the mechanics of a campaign, the kind of things that the party chairman uh, is in charge of. And I also thought it was quite telling at the end, he says that he will remain, as always, loyal to the Conservative Party. And it, 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 I thought that was a very telling choice of ending. Because normally in those letters, you'd remain uh, loyal to the Prime Minister as well, Melanie. Can, can, yeah, can I can I just ask that? I mean, Danny Finkelstein, who who really should be here instead of me this morning, but he 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 drops that lovely line in about the Oliver Dowden's letter is it's it's equivalent of the ravens leaving the tower. Is 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 he is it is is he really that uh, that sort of rated? Is he really that important? He is a, he is a, a, a party man to his fingertips, uh, and and a kind of party loyalist to his fingertips. You know, he worked for David Cameron. I think it's kind of I think people always thought of him privately as a as a as a Brexiteer. But you know, when the referendum came, you know, he worked for Cameron, and the party leader was backing Remain, so he backed Remain, and and he is just the kind of he is the kind of quiet, competent person that political parties rely on. And so for him to be going, it is a significant moment. And it's also particularly significant because in that 2019 Tory leadership election, when everyone was wondering, you know, can the Tory party really take the risk on Boris? You know, it was Oliver Dowden, Robert Jenrick and Rishi Sunak who Uh, wrote that piece for The Times saying, you know, actually, we're in such a we're in such a hole. He's the only person who can get us out of it. And I think Olive Dowden's presence on that article was particularly important to people because people were like, oh, right, OK. So first of all, this guy who worked for David Cameron is saying we should kind of, you know, get over Boris Johnson's role in, in David Cameron's downfall. And also this person who is who is not personally ambitious, but someone whose concern is about the, the, the interest on, of the Tory party was saying the best choice for the party is Boris Johnson. Yeah, and in fact, I, I messaged someone who worked with very closely during the David Cameron era and said, described him as the ultimate loyalist and team player, but he's clearly fed up and sees no other way. Such a good man. And that's basically, it's when the nice, quiet, unassuming, loyal, yeah. let's not rock the boat ones uh, do it, then uh, then it's an issue. Uh, just very quickly before you both go, Glastonbury, I, I was just looking at some pictures on the telly, actually. It looks like it's raining. <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> uh, what, where do you stand on Glastonbury, Melody? Well, I think it's a kind of barometer of life, isn't it? It's it's culturally, politically, it it you know you get 
all ages. You've got you've got eighteen year old Billy Eilish, well Billy Eilish and Paul McCartney, eighteen to eighty, and you've got it, 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 it's it's kind of on the button. It's like the equivalent of of a town like Oxford moving moving to the country and 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 having fun. And you do you remember do you remember what it was the O Jeremy Corbyn, wasn't it? Yeah. That, that, didn't they? So so I kind of wonder what they're going to sing this time. I would I would I mean I I don't go. Oh, um, Keir Starmer doesn't quite scan, does it? <laughs> No, no, but it's it's a you know maybe there'll be a sort of an anti Boris chant. I mean I don't know, but it's to me there's there's um, there there is a little bit of of of, of symbolism there. Have you, have you ever been, James? Uh, I must admit, I never, I I I, I haven't been. Um, uh, no, it's 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 uh, um, it's not it's not it's not on um it's not on my it's not on my to do <laughs> list. Yeah. Well, Andy Burnham's going apparently, so that's something for everyone to get excited. Oh, well, that's about. interesting. He's performing yeah. on a stage somewhere. Uh, oh, Andy Burnham, that that does scan. That's that's <laughs> yeah, the important. That does. That's, that's the important. <laughs> that does, yeah. James Forsyth and Melanie Reed. Then, of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the by-election by numbers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. What a night. What a night and what a political day. Two by-elections, two big losses for the Conservative Party and a cabinet resignation thrown in. In Tiverton and Honiton. Ford, Richard John, Liberal Democrats, 22,500. Yes, the Lib Dems securing a 6,144 majority with an almost 30% percentage point swing away from the Conservatives to them. And then in Wakefield... Hereby declare that the said Simon Robert Lightwood is duly elected for the Wakefield constituency. Labour winning there with a majority of 4,925. Uh, was it 12, 13% swing uh, towards them? And then if defeats alone weren't bad enough, Tory party co-chair Oliver Dowden quitting. Well, almost in the middle of the night it was. It was about five, uh, 5.30 this morning, Oliver Dowden, uh, releasing a devastating uh, letter of resignation to the Prime Minister 
uh, saying our supporters are distressed and disappointed by recent events and I share their feelings. We cannot carry on with business as usual. Somebody must take responsibility and I've concluded that in these circumstances it would not be right for me to remain in office. Interestingly, he then went on to say he will always remain loyal to the Conservative Party without saying he was loyal to the Prime Minister. Boris Johnson's vowed to go on and on. Just keep going, he says. Uh, Lucy Fisher, first of all, is with me, Times Radio's chief political commentator. Uh, where are we uh, right now, Lucy, in terms of the political fallout of all of this? Well, Matt, uh, what's catching my attention in particular, I must just uh, draw the listeners' attention to, is Ed Davey appearing with the latest Lib Dem prop. We've pre- previously had the hammer simulating the demolition of the blue wall. We've the had little a, orange hammer knock, knocking the through little the The little orange wall, hammer. Yeah. We've had the pin bursting Boris's bubble or a big pink balloon. And today we've got Ed Davey uh, appearing in front of a door frame with the slogan, it's time to show Boris the door. Personally, I'm very disappointed he hasn't chosen to mount a tractor ploughing into the Tory heartlands. <laughs> and actually, I've, that would have been great because Boris Johnson famously drove the tractor... Uh, to get Brexit done. Absolutely. Uh, that would that. Yeah, you're right. They should have driven a tractor. I think there could have been more impactful ideas. We've also heard Ed Davey talking today uh, about the shockwave. So I'd wondered if he might have uh, donned a wetsuit and brought a surfboard along. But uh, ride the no. ride the yellow wave. Ride the wa- yellow ride, wave. It's, it's we all... should be employed by the Lib Dems. <laughs> and yet we probably shouldn't. But what does all of this mean? <laughs> How much can we uh, take from a by-election? Can we read too much into it all? Uh, well, uh, what we're going to do for the big thing today is get under the bonnet of it all uh, and i just should we all just be calming down does it tell us anything uh, we're joining me in the studio conservative peer and polling expert lord hayward robert hayward morning good morning good to see you on the line we've got professor sir john curtis professor of politics at the university of strathclyde morning john good morning to and we've got paula Surridge, deputy director at uk to changing europe based at king's college london morning paula good morning I'll come around all of you, first of all, and just in a word or two or a sentence, just sum up, what's the thing that you're most interested in has caught your eye? That, 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 that we, we know today that we didn't know yesterday, if you like, in terms of uh, the, these results. You, first of all, Robert? Uh, the resignation of Oliver Dyden, the letter, it, it said that it takes great skill to write short letters. Long letters are much easier to write. That's a short letter with one hell of a message. Very good. You, John? To be honest, I don't think the by-election results told us, told us anything we didn't know already, as opposed to confirm things that we thought we knew already. Uh, the Conservatives are in trouble. Um, some, of their po- some of the voters who don't like them are beginning to gang up on them, but there isn't that much enthusiasm yet for the Labour Party. And Paula, your key takeaway? Well, I think one of the key takeaways that perhaps is going under the radar a little bit is the kind of failure of um, anybody on the right to break through. So, you know, no, no showing really in either by-election for Reform UK, which changes the dynamic of um, the party politics somewhat. Reform UK, previously the Brexit Party, which was the Nigel Farage vehicle after but post-UKIP. You're right, none of those, we haven't seen that sort of, the Tories don't appear to be losing votes out to that that side. And I suppose... Uh, Paula, in a general election, were, I don't know, Nigel Farage to return to the fray, maybe, and electrify uh, politics on that wing, that could that could also spell trouble for the Conservatives? Possibly, but I think the Conservatives have now taken most of those voters under their wings and the agenda that um, Reform UK are putting forward in regards to cost of living and, and other things is is very much a minority view. So I'm not sure that it would spiral in quite the way it did previously. Okay, doke. Um, let's uh, let's stick. Let's start with uh, Wakefield. What can we read into uh, into the significance of the result in Wakefield, John? You've 
You've written a piece at the time. You point out it was a 12.7% swing from Conservative to Labour in Wakefield. That's enough to deliver Labour an overall majority, but it's it's not a sort of record-breaking uh, result. And they've achieved similar things before, and then they went on to lose the 2015 election. Yeah, I think if I was particularly going to put the damper on uh, Labour's success uh, in Wakefield, I would point out that their share of the vote is still between two or three points below what Jeremy Corbyn managed to achieve back in 2017. Indeed, this continues the story of the local elections, whereby it's still the case that Sikir Starmer is not able to demonstrate that he can take his party to levels of popularity that previous leaders have not achieved. Um, the eight-point increase in itself, well, under Ed Miliband, there were no less than 10 by-elections in which the Labour vote went up by eight points or more between 2010 and 2015. Um, the result, actually, it's almost exactly what you would have expected given the local elections in Wakefield at the beginning of May. They had Labour 17 points ahead. In the end, Labour was 18 points ahead. So there isn't any obvious evidence that the campaign of the last seven weeks has managed to attract any more voters to Labour either. I don't know if you've seen this, John, but there's, there's been a bit of a suggestion that Labour Party aren't happy that you're being a bit down on their, on their victory. Uh, uh, Kevin Scove from Huffington Post say Labour not happy, John Curtis... Um, pouring a bucket at I won't repeat the full language people here were furious about him yet again setting the narrative totally unchallenged he did this nonsense during the local elections and now he's at it again John you're not you're not you're not joining in with the party atmosphere team Starmer expected no you're, you're absolutely right I think you know the truth is that um, you know our job as uh, external observers is try to give uh, as careful an analysis as possible um, I think I did also say in the Times piece that you know, Labour's performance was creditable, and it certainly is creditable. It's just that that crucial objective, that can Labour take itself in places that it's not previously been so far as its popularity nature is concerned, that is still a project in uh, progress. Um, you know, I'd also point out that Labour's share of the poll in the, in, in the national polls moment at 39% is no better than it was in the autumn of 2020. Um, uh, it, the reason why they have a lead over the Conservatives is simply because of the self-inflicted wounds of the Conservative Party, rather than necessarily any enthusiasm for Labour. And still Labour are, until Labour are continually about 40% in the polls, till we start having by-election uh, successes, which you know clearly Ed Miliband was, and Jeremy Corbyn were never able to achieve, um, until we get local election results that are clearly better than Jeremy Corbyn could ever achieve, one has to say that, yes, so Labour is certainly in a much better place than they were in 2019, but they're not necessarily in as good a place where we were beginning to say, well, actually, it's quite a serious chance, despite the electoral system, the Labour Party might win an overall majority in the next election. Yeah. Uh, Robert? I, th I think John's right up to a point, but I do think, actually, that Keir Starmer will be breathing a big sigh of relief today. Uh, he's been portrayed quite rightly by many people, as too metropolitan. There were distinct mutterings. There are distinct mutterings in the Labour Party about his leadership. And the swing today is, as John says, on a par with most cases. But the Wakefield campaign for the Labour Party was plain bad. The local Wakefield Party refused to do large amounts of work. And I am told by a Lib Dem who was at the count at Wakefield that the, the Labour supporters in the hall were bust in. They were not the local Labour councillors. They were not the local Labour supporters. So they've achieved 
an adequate result against a background of lots of internal difficulty, the sort that one often sees in a by-election and the Tories faced in North Shropshire and one or two places like that. So I think Keir Starmer will be, and, and his office and his supporters will be breathing a sigh of relief today because it'll mute some of the mutterings. The thing is, uh, Paula, the, 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 we shouldn't forget, it wasn't that long ago, the Conservatives took Hartlepool off the Labour Party. So and, you know, we can have an argument about what is and isn't the red wall. But though, you know, northern seats, which used to be traditionally Labour, which the Conservatives uh, had taken, this is progress, isn't it? It might not be spectacular progress, but it's better than not making this progress from Keir Starmer's point of view. Absolutely. It's definitely progress. And it's certainly enough to silence some of the critical voices within the Labour Party. You know, an 18-point lead is very close to that mythical 20 points ahead that gets banded around so often. Um, it's a symbolic building block to, learn, to to win it back at this stage. So it was, it was absolutely a must-win for Starmer and his team. And I think they probably won it a little bit better than they might have expected. So they're able to, to put quite a lot of those criticisms um, to one side and, and certainly... Compared with the morning after the Hartlepool election, the um, internal strife within the Labour Party hasn't been bubbling to the fore in the way it did after that result. Well, I think it's worth pointing out, Matt, that um, you know, I'm not, it's not clear to me that there's any evidence in this by-election result of Labour making particular progress in the Red Wall. The truth is that any constituency, government-held constituency with a small majority, is likely to be lost to the opposition to move of Parliament. In fact, that eight-point increase is barely any higher than the seven-point increase in old Bexley and Sidcup uh, in, in the south of London uh, just before Christmas. So, yes, I think the point is the Labour Party can make as much progress in a Red Wall constituency as it can in any other constituency in the UK at the moment, given the, the Conservatives' dire position. But again, we're lacking clear evidence that there's any particular magical return of the Labour Party uh, in this particular Red Wall constituency. Lucy? I've just been fascinated by um, the informal pact that there appears to have been between Labour and uh, the Lib Dems to stay out of each other's way, um, Labour to allow the Lib Dems a clear run at Tiverton and Honiton and vice versa in Wakefield. I just wonder how replicable is that in a general election? And is there any suggestion, um, any of you have picked up, that people are coalescing around just an anti-Tory sentiment and that they would be willing to put aside their usual party loyalty at a general election to try and get the Tories out by voting tactically? Robert? Yeah. I was wondering whether John yeah, wanted yeah, to comment. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, this is, this oh, is absolutely you know, one of the central things that has already begun to be. There was evidence in the local elections that where the Liberal Democrats were starting off second to the Conservatives, they were advancing, Labour weren't making much progress. And conversely, where Labour was second to the Conservatives, then it was was the Labour Party that was advancing, the Liberal Democrats not making much progress. Um, And indeed, you know, it's not just these two by-elections, but if you also look at, you know, the five by-elections that the Conservatives have tried to defend their seat in the last 12 months, what we've seen consistently, you know, the, the three... Uh, contests where the Liberal Democrats were uh, deemed to be the principal challenges. Their vote is way up. Uh, Labour's vote is falling back. And conversely, even though you know there were, wasn't much of a Liberal Democrat vote left to squeeze, the Liberal Democrat vote is down where Labour are the challenges and Labour have made the kind of progress that we've just been talking about. And, and I think, you know, there are two things one can say about on the back of this. One is the run of defeats that the Conservatives have suffered uh, during the last year, the last time you can find a party 
that suffered a similar run of defeats is John Major in the 92 to 97 parliament. So these are on a scale that, you know, I do have an unhappy president. And the last time you saw by-elections producing systematic tactical voting that did indeed then eventually transpire into the general election was the 1992 to 97 parliament. <laughs> and perhaps the crucial political development is that it looks as though many a Labour voter who hitherto just was not willing to vote tactically for the, for the Democrats because of their involvement in the coalition with the Conservatives of 2010 to 2015, it looks as though now they are beginning to forgive and forget. And that in an environment in which at least there is a section of a non-Conservative lecture that are basically now just antipathetic to the Conservatives, it looks as though they are willing to follow the cues from the intensity of the party campaigns. Uh, they work out who's got the chance of winning locally and they take that opportunity. We've done quite a lot on Wakefield. Let's turn our attention now to uh, Tiverton. A 38.1% increase in the share of the votes uh, for the Lib Dems, slightly above the equivalent figure in North Shropshire. It's the third biggest ever rise in the Lib Dem support in a previously Conservative held seat. But Ed Davies having a whale of a time. We've put, uh, we, I think we can bring you now. This is Ed Davies unveiling his latest stunt. It's the blue door. Let's listen. Today, the people of Tiverton Honiton have spoken for the British people and they've sent a loud and clear message. It's time to show Boris the door. And there he is and he's unveiling his door, which is lovely. So a big win for the Liberal Democrats against a Conservative and a previously Conservative-held safe seat. Any experience of that, Robert? (laughs) When John Curtis was talking about the major years, uh, I held the record as the largest anti-government swing of all time against any government. Uh, and I still do, despite Tiverton last night. So there is life so after you, massive death. You were that the Conservative candidate defeat. in uh, Christchurch in 1993. And so what was the swing against you then? Over 35%. Oh, it's a mere. Tiverton was a mere 29.9% <laughs> last night. So. so how bad is this then for the Conservatives, do you think? It is bad, but I think it's the combination of the two results. If you ask and I was talking to Tory MPs last week, this week, um, the expectation was that in both cases the majorities would be smaller, although they, many MPs were expecting defeats. It's a combination of both of them that is going to have a real impact on MPs. If I can just pick up uh, the question of an anti-conservative vote, which mm. we were discussing just now, it's easier in a by-election because you are concentrating in one constituency or another, which is what happened with Wakefield and Tiverton. In a general election, it is nowhere near so easy. Obviously, there will be marginal seats, which are marginal to the Lib Dems or marginal to Labour, and that's where the efforts will be concentrated. But you can't extrapolate way down the line, because most voters don't know whether they live in a key marginal or one where they should cast their votes one way or the other. That takes a lot of effort on one party's or another's part to get the message across. And Paul, the other thing is, we were talking, um, we heard from Ed Davey earlier, and, you know, they were talking about bussing in hundreds of Liberal Democrats from right across the country. You can swamp a seat like that. You can create the sense that this has always been orange and all the the orange um, uh, diamonds in every hedge and bush and whatever it might be. You can't do that. Liberal Democrats don't have the infrastructure to do that in 650 seats at a general election. It's a very different thing, isn't it? It is. And they'll obviously have a much, much smaller list of target seats for a general election. But I think some of these results reignite the kind of dilemma for the Liberal Democrats that they've that they've had 
since the EU referendum, which is do they try to rebuild areas of previous strength? So we saw a piece yesterday about the southwest and the possibility of them rebuilding. But those seats generally like Tiverton will leave voting or do they lean into that kind of Brexit realignment around education and try and pick up seats where they haven't had previous strength, but where they gained quite a lot of votes and fell just a little bit short um, in 2019. And that will make, I think, choosing the target list of seats for the Liberal Democrats um, more difficult than it might originally seem. Could any of you offer any advice to Boris Johnson as to what he could realistically do, which he's so far not come up with, to try and turn things around? Uh, the honest answer to that, Matt, is to be honest to people about what happened over party day. His problem is that 75% of the public just do not believe he's been telling the truth. Now, it may well be it's too late for him to persuade people that he has turned over a new leaf um, and is telling the truth. But otherwise... As we've seen with the continuing saga of the story about whether he did or did not try to um, organise a job for his future, for his then future wife, um, the question of the Prime Minister's ethics and probity is going to continue to arise because any political journalist know, uh, worth their sort knows that any uh, evidence they can find that casts further doubt on the Prime Minister's ethics and probity is going to have news value. Robert? I was going to say, I've always thought that Boris's downfall would come from some form of malfeasance, a word I may have used on this programme yeah. previously. And John's just referred to the latest saga in relation to work uh, for his wife, uh, wife-to-be at that point. And journalists are digging over... People don't forget, most of the people who've moved against the Tories, most are people who already didn't like Boris, but they've moved even further against him more strongly. But what it, we are seeing is that there is a further group of people who are previously took the view that Bo it was built into the price, that Boris was a bloke who did made errors and all these sorts of things. And the favourability ratings for Boris have plummeted in recent, over the last eight months. They rose slightly over Ukraine at the start, but they've gone back down again. Yeah. And therefore, he is facing that difficulty. And as John says, you have to get a message across which starts from what is now an unsound base because there's this credibility gap. And the problem, Paula, is that this is not like a policy thing where if you had a very un a run of unpopular policies where you just stop coming up with unpopular policies and you just but because it's it's so fundamentally about him and the, the other thing that I suppose Robert just touched on a bit though is that the, the more some people getting more cross is not the same as more people getting cross and actually that's probably the thing that's flipped isn't it is the, the Boris Johnson haters are absolutely apoplectic but there are lots of other people who have quietly come to this to the same view yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Um, James Johnson, who, who does your uh, focus group, showed, shared some data just before we came on air. And it showed that about 50% of those that were switching back to the Labour from the Conservatives said it was because Boris wasn't on the side of the working class. And I think that that element of not being on people's side is something that's really shifted in perception, um, driven partly by Partygate, but by other things as well. And that kind of drip, drip, drip so that people no longer see him as speaking for them is very, very difficult to shift back. And so it, class is, I think, really important. You, you've done, you've, you've talked before about that, you know, the things that we ought to keep an eye on. If we take a step back a bit from the, the exact, the actual results of these two by-elections, what are the next trends we should be looking at, the parts of the country? I mean, clearly, we haven't been barely in touch on the SNP, and clearly any hope that Keir Starmer has of getting into number 10 will in some 
uh, part depend on what the SNP are doing in Scotland. But the, the sort of the polling trends, the policy trends, the politics trends that we ought to be keeping an eye on in the in the coming months. I'll come around to each of you. Uh, you first of all, John. Um, well, I think you know, the honest answer to Matt is you just a follow the opinion polls in general, and b Boris Johnson's personal ratings in particular. Uh, and C, I guess we should be looking at people's perceptions of how well they think the cost of living crisis is being dealt with. Um, if, the cons- if, if to uh, allegations of malfeasance, as um, uh, Lord Hayward put it, uh, were to be added the, the perception of incompetence, which perhaps is not quite there yet, then that probably would be a deadly combination. So uh, the government needs to try and get on the front foot on the cost of living crisis very difficult, of course, it is, uh, though that undoubtedly will be. Uh, Robert? Um, one issue that we've not touched on but was key to Boris's victory in 2019 is Brexit. Yeah. And both these are leave constituencies that one's talking about. And if, the, if Brexit becomes less and less and less important in terms of opinion polls, then the Conservatives face real trouble, but so does Boris because the message about getting Brexit done doesn't work. If it doesn't work because it's shown not to do so in the polls, and then I, there's a real problem. I tried several times to get Ed Davey to say whether or not the Lib Dems were going to the next election promising to rejoin the EU, and he just didn't want to talk about it because he knows, <laughs> you know, that's not going to win you seats in the southwest. Uh, finally, Paulie, your, your thing to keep an eye on. I just keep an eye on those opinion polls because something that we've seen now across a range of by-elections is that when a party is unpopular as the Conservatives are at the moment, when their leader is unpopular as Boris Johnson is at the moment, it doesn't really matter what kind of wall you're in or what kind of part of the country you're in. The party's doing badly everywhere. So keep an eye on those opinion polls. But also on those opinion polls, just keep an eye on which voters are starting to to move around a little bit because one of the things that's been really noticeable and I think is borne out by these Leave constituencies is that Leave voters have been turning away from the Conservatives um, in in almost larger numbers than Remain voters. So that's something really to keep an eye on um, as far as the trends go. Oh, it's fascinating. It's plenty for us to keep I really appreciate uh, your your time this morning. Uh, Lord Hayward here in the studio with me. Uh, Sir John Curtis, Paula Savage, thanks so much for joining us. But let's now speak to the man who started all of this in Tiverton and Honiton. Seems like a long time ago now. Neil Parrish resigned from his seat after admitting uh, twice watching pornography in the House of Commons. Triggered the by-election. That seat, rock-solid Tory seat. He won a 24,000-vote majority back in the election in 2019. Now it's Lib Dem and Neil Parrish uh, joins me on the line. Morning, Neil. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. How are you, how are you feeling this morning? Well, other than a, a bit of COVID that um, Sue managed to catch and then given to me, she's getting gradually getting better. I'm not too bad. Um, yeah, I'm I'm getting over it. Um, life moves on, um, and uh, I did what I believed to be the right thing by uh, resigning. And I think, you know, unfortunately, it's been very much a referendum um, on the prime minister. Uh, you did the right thing. You were caught out. You you did the right thing and resigned. Is it time for him to do the right thing and resign? Well, I think, um, you know, lots of people have suggested such things. It's for the 
Prime Minister to consider his position. It's also the MPs to consider his position, because I, I heard Ruth Davidson on and you talking to her just now when you were talking about in politics, you, you need to be a winner. Um, and we, you know, we're, we're quite venal as MPs. We vote for those that can win. We don't vote for those that can't. And I think, you know, the, the question mark now is, is Boris still a winner or not? And I think it is very questionable at the moment. Just put a picture for us, Neil, for people who don't. I mean, obviously, I know this part of the world well. How how big is it that this Tiverton and Honiton is no longer represented by a Conservative MP? I mean, it's it's a very traditional Conservative seat. Um, it's really, I mean, I would say very sensible people because I represented them for 12 years and I got on with them very well. I worked hard and I enjoyed doing it. Um, but it is a, a traditional um, to proper, what I call proper uh, Tory seat. And so therefore, to lose this one, you know, by 6,000 votes um, is bad. Now, there is part of it was tactical voting because the Labour vote went down from 11,500 in, in 2019 to 1,500, you see. So that helped greatly. But there was a lot of people, uh, Tories that stayed home, uh, there were lots. There were others that um, defected to the Liberal Democrats. The the, the rural vote um, is unhappy because of our agricultural reforms, and they're not sure that we got the farming and food production right. And I was fighting the corner hard on that. So lot, lots of issues going on. Cost of living crisis. People are really feeling the pinch. So it wasn't just. Uh, Boris alone. But of course, naturally, that's where um, the Liberal Democrats pitched it. And in, in fairness, they won fair and square. Uh, do you think that the, the seat is winnable again at the next election? Or, or does this actually, and we saw what happened with the local elections in just over the border in Somerset, where the Lib Dems uh, are now back in control. Are you, does this, are you worried that this means that actually the Lib Dems are back in a big way and could take a lot of other traditional Tory rural seats like this down in the southwest? I mean, the Lib Dems actually naturally always feed on, if they can get successes, they sort of build on that. And, and of course, I mean, I've always said, you know, being a, a traditional Tory, um, that the ones to fear in the West Country uh, always were and always will be the Liberal Democrats. Now, I think come the general election, people have to decide who they want to be the government of the day, and they look much more at policies, not just personalities. Uh, but the Conservative Party is really going to have to turn ourselves around and, and look electable and look like a government, uh, and then we have a chance of holding the seats and even winning the general election. But we can't drift like we are at the moment. Do you think Boris Johnson can turn it around, or does it now need someone else? I think the trouble is, I mean, I, I actually like Boris and I think the big issues, COVID, vaccines, you know, the Ukraine standing up to the Russians, all of these things he's done well. And he was at the Commonwealth Conference this morning and I heard him speaking on BBC News and, and, and he was speaking well. But the problem is, you see, it's now a matter of trust. And, and I think that's difficult to recover from. But, you know, in the end, um, the party and the MPs, they will have to decide in, you know, Parliament, um, do they? Or, see, I think it was right to keep Boris through this period. I think it's right because the country did not want, you know, a leadership contest from the Tory party and the rest of it. Uh, but is he the right man to lead us in the general into a general election at the moment? I think that is highly questionable. Uh, that's, I mean, it's a, I, mean, I think we'll, uh, lots of people will uh, will have some sympathy with that. One of the things that really struck me, Neil, was 
Um, as speaking to people in your in your seat and down in the southwest, you know, I know as you know, I know lots of people down there. Um, you you had quite a lot of sympathy uh, for people thought that you'd you'd done something stupid, you'd paid quite a high price for that, uh, and actually maybe that played a part for why people didn't uh, turn out and vote. I just wonder whether you feel like you paid quite a high price. You resigned your seat as a as an MP, um, and yet the Prime Minister fine for breaking the law in Downing Street, clearly oversaw a huge culture of rule-breaking in in Number 10. Uh, he's accused of misleading the Houses of Parliament. On a whole range of issues, uh, he uh, has clearly a, a disregard for, for maybe telling the truth or abiding by the rules. And I just wonder if you feel a bit like you've paid quite a high price, and he hasn't really paid a price at all so far. Uh, Matt, I'm, you know, I mean, you don't forget, you know Somerset because you'd be born and bred, my boy, um, in Somerset, and I, I know that. Um, so, you know, um, yes, I mean, it's a great area, but I think, yes, I mean, I think, I mean, Boris is Boris, you see, and he has these sort of characteristics of being very attractive to some uh, and, and turning off others. Um, and I think the, the issue probably is not altogether party gate um i think that was bad but i think the sort of the the twisting and turning um has been the worst part of it and i think you know i mean he either is a statesman and can be a statesman like prime minister and then he will lead us into the next election or if he's not capable of being such a, such a prime minister um then he will be replaced before the general election and i mean and that is that's the law of politics i mean i've got to accept i mean i i you know i mean i got a lot of support still in the constituency i know i have um and i'm sorry to leave them because i really enjoyed representing them and i you know i fought the farming and food and, and, and all of these things so hard. Uh, but, you know, in the end, we are all expendable uh, in politics. We've got to remember that. Um, and so, therefore, I've got to sort of pick up the pieces, get on with my life and accept the situation. And I, and I suspect that at some stage, the Prime Minister may have to do the same. Boris Johnson's expendable too. All leaders are, yeah, I mean, not, I'm not just getting at, at Boris. I mean, look at, you know, I mean, who is David Cameron, bless him. Um, you know, I mean, um, other than sort of Margaret Thatcher, a little bit on Tony Blair. Um, who was Gordon Brown, a little bit we know. Um, you know, I mean, they come and they go. Um, who was Neil Parrish? I accept that, you know. Um, <laughs> I did a good job while I was there, enjoyed it very much, did a stupid thing um, and, and went. Um, but that's life. Um, so, you know, I'm in that sort of very uh, philosophical mood this morning because I think, you know, you've got to pick up the pieces and get on with it. I think the party must listen to what I believe to be very sensible people in Tippett and Hollis. And you can't brush this away. You can't live in a parallel universe. Um, and you have just got to face reality. And I'm not sure the prime minister and the party is at the moment. Just funny. I know some some people tried to encourage you to stand as an independent last time around. Do you think you'd ever uh, stage a comeback if the conservative local conservatives came and said, "Neil, do you want to stand at the next election?" Well, never rule anything out at this stage because it's very foolish in politics. Um, I suspect my sort of major political career is now done. I want to look at you know food, farming, um, and you know, looking at ways we can actually produce more food and enhance the environment. There's not enough food in the agriculture bill, all those things. Um, I've been working with Fair Share to try and deliver food for four people. So I, I've had a very broad, because being a select committee chair, you, you have a very sort of cross-party type attitude to, to life. And of course, I've been very independent. I think that was part of my, my problem 
perhaps in the London party, as I was perhaps a little too independent, <laughs> too independent for, their, for, for their liking. And I, <laughs> I did hold a few ministers' feet, perhaps, to, to plenty far enough to the fire. But um, I must admit, I enjoyed it, and I make no apology for that. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.